KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. First, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Flashpoint podcast. Welcome to the Flashpoint family. Would you do me a favor? Would you log on to the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or whatever podcast platform that you use and subscribe to Flashpoint? All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. Now let's get to it. We're walking you through the flames. This week, the focus is jury diversity. Majority minority juries have been front and center in recent high-profile racially charged trials. Stopping the all-white juries. That's been the, the, the struggle. The issues of implicit bias that we all carry in us. Yet one in three Philadelphians ignore jury summonses. But why? They're coming up with reasons to eliminate themselves. Reasons why jurors tap out and the potential legislation designed to fix it. We dig in. Then the organization that helped to free rapper Meek Mill says they're hard at work. The probation system is like a spider's web of catch-22. Their effort to push reform and the timeline that'll make your head spin. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is jury diversity. In recent weeks, majority-minority juries made decisions in several racially charged trials, like the conviction of the white former police officer Amber Geiger, who was convicted of murdering a black man in Texas. Then right here... The jury found Michael White, who was black, not guilty of manslaughter in the Rittenhouse stabbing death of Sean Skellinger, who is white. One in three Philadelphians ignored jury summonses. So how does that impact diversity of a jury? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is the Honorable Carolyn Nichols. She's a judge on the Pennsylvania Superior Court. She spent seven years as a Philadelphia Court of Common Pleas judge overseeing hundreds of jury trials. We also have Kevin Mincy, a civil rights and criminal defense attorney and former prosecutor. And finally, on the phone, we have Maida Malone, president and CEO of Pennsylvanians for Modern Courts. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. So, Judge, I want to start with you. Could you just give us an overall understanding of the role of the jury? Uh, When you're talking about trials, it goes back to the Constitution. The Sixth Amendment guaranteed the right to fair and impartial juries. It's a fundamental right. Out of that, of course, comes a concern for racial representativeness in juries. Uh, And we know there's a long history of that, uh, that that the juries should represent a fair cross section of the community. And that equates to a fair and impartial Jury, Kevin, you've tried cases as well. Uh, jury of your peers is the big goal. You want a fair cross-section? From my perspective, obviously you're looking for people who are going to listen to you know, your version of the case. But I think you know, generally in the criminal justice perspective, we want folks who want to be jurors, who are eager to uh, listen and evaluate cases and uh, are willing to set aside any biases that they have. Because we all have biases. Mm-hmm. They're willing to set aside those biases to, to judge the facts uh, on an even hand. So, Maida, when you hear this, this is what's supposed to happen. How do the courts sort of help to facilitate um, bringing the folks in to making sure that they do get this cross section of folks that can help render justice? Well, I think the courts are are focused on this. 
and trying their best to do what they can to encourage people to participate with a carrot rather than a stick. I mean, we know that there are penalties associated with not responding to a jury summons, but I think consideration of juror pay, reimbursement of transportation costs, child care and adult care assistance, all of those things would go a long way to encouraging more people to participate. Judge, when you were sitting in front of folks, a big part of it is they're trying to get out of it. Yes, unfortunately. And it's really a tragedy. I mean, I I remember watching uh, a movie about Martin Luther King, and Martin Luther King was talking with LBJ, and LBJ was all excited about ending poverty, the war on poverty. And Martin Luther King came back with, yeah, well, what are we going to do about these all-white juries? And I was like, yes, that's exactly it. So, Dr. King was very much focused on fair representation on juries and stopping the all-white juries because you knew what we all, we know what happened certainly in the Jim Crow South uh, when black people at some at points in history weren't even competent to testify as witnesses. That's been the the, the struggle to ensure that it is fair and impartial. Now the the you're not entitled to a jury of your peers. You're entitled to a fair and impartial jury. But the whole fight is, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. What is and a fair and impartial because, jury? And one of the things is people say that you could have a fair and impartial jury that is all white or all people of color, right? Uh, yeah, certainly. From the practitioner's perspective, you know, we're not always necessarily looking for uh, impartial or non-biased jurors. Of course, you know, all lawyers want to win. But mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean that because someone has a bias or a leaning in a particular way, it doesn't mean that they can't be fair. And ultimately... Uh, I think all practitioners just want a fair forum to have their case heard. And so, you know, when you have folks who are self-selecting themselves out of jury service for a variety of reasons, whether it's pay or child care or, um, you know, for, for whatever, the, whatever the reason is, it really dilutes the jury pool and it makes it harder to get that, that fair and impartial uh, group of people. In Philadelphia, you get $9 a day. But, yeah. I mean, and most of the time downtown, it's 20 plus $30 just to park. Absolutely. And so there's no yes. free parking. And so for people who can't afford it, is that a roadblock, Mena? I think it is. And in fact, um, I just noticed a day or two ago that I believe Representative Frank Dermody has a, a bill pending mm-hmm. or two bills pending to try to cover the cost of parking uh, for all jurors and also to require employers to pay their employees while they're on jury duty. So we'll see what happens with that, but I think that would go a long way, but there are other reforms that are necessary as well. Right. Because child care and, and people that are caregivers for elderly uh, and, and sick relatives is, is a big issue. Uh, and it's very difficult for uh, the potential juror to find someone that can take care of you know, an elderly caretaker, uh, elderly uh, parent that, that may have Alzheimer's or dementia and, and requires special care uh, to come and sit as a juror. I, I used to hear that many, 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 many times. Mm-hmm. There's also legislation to deal with the the disqualification that if a juror has been or potential juror has been convicted of a crime punishable by imprisonment for more than one year, they're actually disqualified uh, to sit as a juror. And that can include misdemeanors. Wow. Uh, and that's a, a in Philadelphia, a city where so many people have uh, criminal records. 
Uh, that's a large yeah. swath there of about, people that are, are knocked right. out of the pool. In this city, there are approximately 44,000 people that are on some kind of probation, just probation uh, alone. Uh, in the Philadelphia region, I've, I've seen numbers as high as, as 250,000 people that have had some uh, background with the criminal justice system. So that's a huge uh, group of people that uh, could be disqualified. And in our system, up to 65 percent of, of people that are convicted are, are misdemeanors, involve misdemeanors, 65 percent. So a person could be convicted of a misdemeanor one, which is, has a punishable of up to five years, and be disqualified from sitting as a juror mm-hmm. you know, for that reason. So these are all things that are being uh, looked at, as, uh, as Maida has mentioned, uh, to enable a fair cross-section uh, of the community to, to sit as jurors. And going back to a point I think that was raised earlier is this question of, you know, where where do we look for mm-hmm. the list of people who mm-hmm. are potential jurors? And we use the motor vehicle registration mm-hmm. list and the registration list. And I think we all know that there are people um, who are not able to own vehicles, who don't have to own vehicles, who live in the city and choose not to. So they don't have a motor vehicle registration. And then there are people who, for a variety of reasons as well, don't register to vote, unfortunately. So we're limiting the pool again by relying on those two lists for our source of jurors. And so, Kevin, you tried all these cases. Have you seen a difference in the outcome based on the makeup of the jury? Yes, certainly the makeup of jury matters in every case. Uh, I wouldn't say that I've ever tried a case where I felt like the ultimate or the, the end end product was not a fair and impartial one, but mm-hmm. you certainly lose uh, prospective jurors who could be good jurors for both sides just because they are coming up with reasons to eliminate themselves uh, from from the jury pool. And ultimately, you want people who want to be there. And I think made this point uh, about the uh, legislation about juror pay, employers mm-hmm. having to pay jurors, mm-hmm. is an important one because. You know, that's generally the biggest thing. When you have folks who have hourly jobs and don't have that salary, don't have that paid time off, and shouldn't be forced to take paid time off, quite frankly, to do a civic duty like jury duty if we want people to participate. If we have folks who uh, feel like they're being pressured to be there, nobody wants that, that particular juror on their, on their panel because you don't know how that's going to end up you know, washing out in the decision-making process. If, is it going to be a, a petty decision made? Are they going to hold out for a particular reason? Or are they going to just make a decision just to end it so that they can go back to whatever they deem to be more important. So I think that initiative to pay jurors, have employers pay jurors. I'm, I'm an employer. I pay my employees to go to jury service because we think it's important, and obviously it's what we do for a living. But, you know, the same way that they fought for paid sick leave here, mm-hmm. they should be fighting for paid jury leave because it's, it's just as important. I do have to, you know, bring up some of these more high-profile cases, and I'm opening up to the entire panel um, in the Amber Geiger case, for example, majority minority jury there, according to reports, that was likely instrumental in the verdict. Um, we just had another uh, a mistrial uh, in New Jersey recently uh, with a um, with a, a former uh, police chief in Bordentown accused of a federal hate crime. There's different ways of pooling those juries, but when you hear these and 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 you hear that the jury makeup was critical. Does that make you even more motivated to make sure that these juries um, do are fair and impartial? Well, absolutely. As a judge, it's 
it's my responsibility. I'm, I'm presiding over the case. It's my responsibility to make sure that justice is done and that we have a fair and impartial process. Uh, what I used to do uh, a lot of times when I would go through the voir dire with jurors and they and they would say, oh, well, I have a hardship. And I, I would put to them, well, if, if it were your relative uh, that was either accused or victimized in 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 a matter, wouldn't you? Wouldn't a jury be important to you? They say, of course, of course. You know, I, this, this is a serious matter here. Whichever way you come down, but we're dealing with the humanity of a situation in which one person is accused, their liberty is at stake, and then we have another person whose life has been impacted. They've been victimized by a crime. You know, we're so fortunate. There are very few countries in the world that actually have jury trials. Yeah. In, in, and this we're only not one of seven a, yeah. in the world, including UK, which only now invented jury trials, but only uh, allows jury trials for criminal matters. Civil matters in UK are non-jury. So here you have a constitutional right to a jury trial. Yeah. And, and the, you don't want to come. Yeah. Well, I would say the jury diversity is extremely important because you can have two people living in the same exact city having two entirely different experiences in their life as far as whether it's interaction with police or whether it's a civil matter and it's you know dealing with whether insurance companies or that type of thing. And you need other jurors in the room to be able to educate folks about you know their point of view and, and how they see life in their particular community that, you know, quite frankly, it may be a, a white male juror who's 55 will not have experienced the same thing that a black female juror who's 28 has experienced. And they will only get to understand that if they're in that room and deliberating together. And so that's why we need to do as much as we can to make sure that we're encouraging everybody to participate in jury service because these little, these, this minutia, these, these small issues and trials that can be missed by folks who have not lived that experience or have not seen that experience. You need those jurors in the room to be able to educate those folks. Yeah. And, and I made, I want to ask you this question because there have been huge changes to the law surrounding jury service in many, many years. Is there the political will to shift things to make it easier for jurors to actually serve? Yeah, it's a great question, and you're absolutely right. There, Much has not changed over the past several decades. And I would have, I think I would have agreed with you that there was no political will around this until, as I said a couple of days ago when I read that there is, uh, there's there are a couple of bills now pending mm-hmm. around this issue, and I think that to be quite honest with you, it goes along with a lack of attention often to the judicial system, to the needs of our judges, and to um, the needs of everyone in Pennsylvania who wants access to justice, and that has not been a principal focus of our legislature, but I'm heartened to see that there is a little bit of movement, at least, on the juror compensation issue, and we can all hope that as we all become much more sensitized to the importance of fair and impartial juries, of the issues of implicit bias that we all carry in us that there will be more will, not only political will, but civic will around this issue. And uh, Pennsylvanians for Modern Courts, we do a great deal of public education 
around the judicial system. And all of our programming has a piece in it that helps people understand why it's important to be on juries and encourages them to participate as jurors. So the combination of all of these things, we can only hope, will lead to um, a, a better judicial system and a better future where juries are more diverse and more impartial. And so I, I want to also talk about the case of, and I heard 21-year-old DeAndre Somerville, uh, who spent 10 days in a Florida jail after he overslept and didn't show up for jury duty. Uh, the judge has since backed off and has promised to clear his record. But just, you know, judge your reaction to that. Uh, and 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 then what do you think it does for those folks who are reluctant to serve on juries in the first place? Well, <laughs> I, I agree with the judge's final conclusion of, of, of how he vacated, uh, I think, the contempt uh, uh, ruling that he came with earlier. Because I, I went and I looked up contempt. Now, of course, this is Florida that this happened in, and Pennsylvania, the law may vary. But contempt is used when there's misbehavior in the presence of the court that obstructs the administration of justice. That's what contempt is. So you look at someone who works full-time, is in college. Mm-hmm. He's taking care of a disabled relative, I believe, a grandfather. I mean, is this really misbehavior that rises to the level of obstructing the administration of justice? And it was interesting, the, the, um, the judge's comment about uh, Mr. Somerville being the only African-American on the jury, that somehow that played into his decision to find him in contempt and for this negligence uh, trial. I think it was a civil trial. After all of the outrage, Realized. I think he rethought. But my yeah. understanding is yeah. he was incarcerated for the full 10 days. Yeah, he did do his time in so prison. He did and the then 10 he days. was going to have a, a record. Right. And I mean, when you hear this, Kevin, I mean, this this is the very reason why people want to tap out. Right. I think this is a perfect example of why mm-hmm. diversity is important. So... You probably you have this judge who thinks that by pointing out that he's the only black juror who's going to be on this jury and that somehow he was affecting the fact that, you know, look, we're trying to have diverse jurors and you're you're thwarting that and not understanding like kind of cultural circumstances that this individual was going through that caused him to be tired and oversleep. And sometimes mistakes happen. Mm-hmm. And so really what it ends up doing is sowing more seeds of distrust with the justice system in general. And now in this particular instance, it's extending from the typical target, which is the police department, and moving it to the bench because you're looking and saying, well, this kid just made an honest mistake, and now you sent him to jail for 10 days and maybe he loses his job, and now you've created an additional layer of problems for this particular person who's trying to participate. So there's got to be diversity of thought on all levels of the justice system, and this is just another example of that. You've seen people highlight actions of judges. You've seen people highlight actions of juries, actions of prosecutors. Actions of defense attorneys, every cog in this wheel that is the criminal justice system. Is this the, I mean, what, what, I mean, is this the next step, so to speak, this whole reforming jury to make it easier? The Florida case goes more to judicial conduct. You really can't legislate judicial conduct. There are codes of judicial conduct that when you put that black robe on, you represent the justice system. Mm -hmm. And as a judge, our conduct must promote confidence in the justice system, or well, the whole thing falls apart, apart because we're the quarterback of the whole thing. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the I know the referee, the referee, the umpire, <laughs> all, all that, all that. Sure, if I could just say something about 
uh, that being the next step of justice reform. I think that criminal justice reform in particular has become kind of the sexy thing, let's say, in the last 10 years or so. Right. If you go even back five, even, even five, if you get, yeah. I mean, if you go back, you know, remember when expung- people didn't care about expungements. Now we have a whole overall system about expungements and people, you know, the Pennsylvania Innocence Project didn't exist 10 years ago. Well, 11 years ago. And now we're going on our 10 year anniversary. Mm-hmm. But people have been focused on the tail end of the justice system. How do we fix this conviction or how do we fix what happened at the end of the trial? Well, jury participation is trying to attack it from one of the ways to attack it from the front end. Obviously, we're talking about police diversity and that type of thing. That's another way to attack it from the front end. But ensuring that we have a fair cross-section of uh, people participating in the Mm. jury selection process can be that step of criminal justice reform that's kind of been ignored um, as criminal justice reform has become in vogue because we've Mm. been so focused on fixing the results instead of looking at some of the problems that lead to those results and trying to fix those. Right, yeah. Because it goes to procedural justice. Mm-hmm. You know, procedural justice, that all people should be treated with respect. So yeah. that the process is fair. Fair process. Fair is fair. So because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. Give us a call to action for folks for the next time they receive that jury summons. What should they be doing and how should they look at jury service? My call to action is justice matters. Juries matter. That's what's at stake is uh, the integrity of, of our system. Yeah. Uh, so we need you to participate, participate. when you get your jury summons. Uh, because remember, it could be your loved one just as easy. Yeah. On either side of the of, of the uh, case. Final word. I'll, I would say that you know, oftentimes when you hear the uh, the judges go through the jury instructions, are telling you that jury service is you know one of the most important civic duties you can do, obviously outside of voting. And so, you know, we have people when they get those summons, you have to take them seriously. Understand that. A lot of times I have people come to me and they say that they never really thought about the consequences of what ignoring jury service means until they have a loved one that's sitting in that chair next to me at the defense table. And it doesn't mean that you're going to get selected, right? There are other reasons why lawyers like myself might not want Cherry Gregg to be on their jury. But get, make yourself, open yourself up to being a part of the process so that the person who is sitting in that defendant's chair has an opportunity to have, and really the Commonwealth as well, as an opportunity to have a fair a fair trial. I would encourage everyone to do it. Um, it is a sacrifice at times financially, but you're doing something so important for the community, and we all need to support each other by participating as jurors. Wonderful. So I want to say thank you to Judge Carolyn Nichols, thank you to Kevin Mincy, and thank you to Maida Malone for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Next up, it's First Focus was freeing Meek Mill. Now the goal is much bigger. We're going from Meek Mill to Million. Reform Alliance talks next steps in Pennsylvania. We'll be right back. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. I'm Matt Leon, sports reporter and anchor here at KYW News Radio. Talking to athletes, coaches, people in Philly sports every day, you find out they have incredible stories to tell. So I started a podcast, a weekly conversation with someone you should know more about. It's called One on One with Matt Leon. Subscribe now wherever you listen. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and one thing that gets folks in our region hot under the collar is a broken justice system. But well, one group made headlines this year for helping McMill get his freedom after a judge ordered the rapper back to prison for a technical violation. 
He had been on probation for nearly a decade. Reform Alliance has vowed to help fix Pennsylvania's probation and parole system for more than just Meek Mill. With me on the phone is Reform Alliance CEO Van Jones and Chief Legal Officer Monique Houghton Worrell. Welcome to Flashpoint. Happy to be here. Wonderful. Wonderful. So Reform Alliance is working hard in Pennsylvania, I hear, Van. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, uh, Pennsylvania, great state, beautiful people. Really, really messed up probation system, though, as the whole world found out when Meek Mill wound up because he was on probation, having to uh, get, he got sentenced to four years uh, back in prison because he popped the wheelie. And people said, well, geez, that's terrible. And it turns out that, unfortunately, Pennsylvania is like in the bottom three for uh, states having way too many people caught up on you know, probation, parole, uh, community supervision. Uh, it, uh, what we've learned and what we're working to fix with a lot of people, right, left, black, white, brown, everybody in Pennsylvania coming together, is that the probation system is like a spider's web of catch-22s. Uh, literally, I think a nun would have a hard time uh, navigating probation. People who are not committing any new crimes at all are going back to prison because some of these conditions are literally impossible to meet. Uh, you got to be at work on time. you got to go every day. At the same time, you got to be across town with your probation officer for three hours. What job is going to let you disappear for half a day every week? It's just crazy. And so we've got a, a bill uh, called the Smart Probation Act that will fix the system, will we'll make it possible for people to be set up to succeed and not fail, and it's very exciting. Yeah. And so tell us about this act. I understand uh, that Pennsylvania is one of, uh, you know, a number of states that has no cap on um, probation time and things like that. And I understand this bill would deal with that issue. That's, that's uh, what we're hoping and expecting. Uh, the final language is, is being worked out and hammered out. Uh, but our view is very simple. We think that there need to be caps on how long somebody can be on probation uh, you got people on probation 18 years, 20 years. You know, it's just that it doesn't make any sense. Um, also, uh, we don't think people should be going back to prison for committing non-crimes. Look, you, know, you show up late to your probation officer. There might there need to be something done, but put somebody in prison for three months, six months, a year, it makes no sense. So we want, yeah, you shouldn't go back to prison for non-crimes. There should be a cap on how long you can be on probation. Um, and also, if you're doing well, how about some carrots? I mean, if you're, if you're doing everything you're supposed to do and you're signing up for classes and you're doing all, well, geez, shorten the sentence and get the person on with their life. The point of probation is to give people a shot to turn their lives around. So we think it's just a bunch of stupid stuff uh, on the books that nobody's really looked at that doesn't make any sense. We're going to clean all that stuff out. And uh, our belief is we're going to actually be able to give people, uh, it's going to cost less and you're going to have more public safety because more people are going to be able to turn their lives around, but be good moms, be good dads, be good workers, be good entrepreneurs, and not have this thing just dragging them down every day. And uh, you know, we're, we're very, very hopeful about the Smart Probation Act. Yeah, and so you've kind of separated the issue of probation from parole at this instance. Yes, uh, you know, the probation system uh, is, a, is a little bit uh, easier to fix, um, and you know, obviously this whole you know free meek movement and the Reform Alliance and all that kind of stuff really. I came out of a, a big concern about how probation is being done. Uh, you know, we, we plan on being, and we've got a great set of coalitional partners, uh, American Conservative Union, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, I mean, left and right. So we're, you know, we'll be in Pennsylvania for a while, but we think before Christmas, 
we can fix the probation system. Yeah. And we've got bipartisan support. We've got bills in both houses with Democrats and Republicans, white and black, coming together, plus the governor's support. So there's a real chance to get something done by Christmas. And I think, you know, in a country as divided as we have become, the idea that this issue is bringing people together across racial lines, regional lines, and party lines uh, is really, really exciting. Yeah, and I want to say that um, I've covered this issue for for quite some time, and, and, and there are so many Republicans who are supportive, and there's a big economic reason for that. And could you explain that? Well, we're wasting money. I mean, it's just bottom line. Um, you know, hundreds of millions, you know, ultimately billions of dollars being wasted on a system that's dumb. Uh, you know, we should be setting up springboards to success and not trap doors into failure. If you took all the people who were on probation and you had the budget to help them, you, the last thing you would do is say, hey, let's just pay a bunch of, you know, people who you know, work for the government to just, you know, trail them, nail them, and jail them. And, that, and that's, that's going to be our response. Now, you say, hey, hey how about we, you know, we give folks some help, some counseling, financial um, literacy programs, uh, anger management, all the stuff people need, uh, you know, job training, job opportunities, uh, you know, maybe some help, help with daycare. I mean, you come up with anything besides what we've come up with. And it's not just Pennsylvania. It's a national problem. But Pennsylvania's got such a great shot to fix it because you've got so much bipartisan support. Yeah. And you all had a, a lobbying day in Harrisburg. You've been really busy because I have to tell you, people were afraid of Van. They were afraid that, you know, once Meek Mill got out of prison, that you guys, the Reform Alliance, was going to go and just leave Pennsylvania hanging. But you guys have been working hard to make sure people know that that is not true. It's not true. And I'm so proud that, you know, Monique and I and others on the team, uh, you know, we're committed. You know, Meek Mill himself said, the first thing he said when he got out of prison is, it's not about me. Uh, he said, you know, he said to take down free Meek and put up, you know, uh, justice reform. And, um, and it's out of that that the Reform Alliance was, was born. You know, we, and we have, we're proud to have a lot of big names, whether you're talking about a Jay-Z or whether you're talking about a Meek Mill or, you know, Robert Smith or any of these, these big names, you know, certainly Michael Rubin. Um, but what's been more impressive and what's been more exciting, I think, for all of us is that regular folks at the grassroots level, local elected officials, DAs, probation officers themselves are coming forward saying this is such a big problem and it could be fixed with a few smart changes. Let's get together and make it happen. So we're going from meek mill to millions of people involved with the Reform Alliance. That's our goal. Yeah. And so I understand that one of the goals and, and Mike Rubin was here in Philadelphia, you know, talking. He had a live event at our PHL, a BPHL festival talking about this issue specifically. And your website, everybody says a million people over the next five years to be free from this system. What's the ground game on getting that done? Well, um, you know, we're starting in Pennsylvania. Uh, we, we're, we're building out nationally. You know, one of the reasons that we're you know so inspired is because, you know, Monique, who's one of the the great uh, uh, lawyers of our time, uh, she, you know, looking into this stuff, you know, she's found so many cases that are just heartbreaking, and it's the heartbreak of those cases that really drives this thing forward. I, I don't want to, I don't want to talk more than Monique does because you know she's she's the one that's really seeing on a daily basis how bad the situation is in Pennsylvania. Yeah, and so Monique, I remember meeting you at one of the rallies uh, where you specifically were saying, "Look, we're looking for folks," and I know you got calls. Some of them weren't the right uh, type of cases, but you've been finding them. And tell me about what you've been finding. Yeah, so there's just been an outpouring of, you know, people contacting us who have been severely impacted by the probation system and just, you know, goes to further substantiate how broken 
the probation system is in Pennsylvania. You know, I can think of one young man off the top of my head. He's 23 years old serving a 23-year probation sentence. That's insane. No one should be on probation for 23 years. Um, you know, if you look at the, the bill that we're trying to uh, pass, there's studies and there's research that shows that probation has an expiration date as far as its effectiveness is concerned. And, and 23 years is certainly far beyond that. Uh, there's another woman who was imprisoned for a technical violation, and she literally died in prison. She went into cardiac arrest. The jail refused to provide her with her seizure medication. She went into cardiac arrest and had to be resuscitated um, and suffered, you know, severe brain injury as a result of it. So the the egregiousness of these individuals who have just been impacted and harmed by the system, um, it's really unsettling. And as Van said, it's heartbreaking. And we're wanting to change that for these and many more. Yeah. And I feel like there's a momentum that is building. Do you agree that is making this um, making the time to be now, so to speak? Well, absolutely. I think that the individuals have been inspired by Meek Mill and his case, and they are speaking up. You know, I've met with people and I've said, you know, I understand that you are currently on probation. And if you don't want to speak out, we understand that. And they've said, no, we want to speak out. We want to change the system, not just for ourselves, but for others like us. We understand what it means to be impacted and the time for change is now. So, yes, I would agree there is definitely a momentum um, in, on the ground. Now, we're, we're talking about by Christmas. I know that a lot of pretty much all the Philadelphia lawmakers have been um, on board with this. They were in Philadelphia. I remember, Van, I remember you guys were all here uh, doing a big press conference saying that this bill, these these Senate bills, House bills were um, were ready and that you wanted to build the report, the support. What makes you so confident that we can accomplish this? And, and it would be like record. I mean, quick, <laughs> that if we're able to get it done this year. Well, I mean, the, the reason is that uh, the system is so broken and so dumb, and the, the, the fixes are so smart and so obvious that, um, you know, it's not going to take a lot of debate. A lot of the people who are the stakeholders in this have been meeting uh, behind the scenes, uh, sometimes happy, sometimes sad, sometimes mad, sometimes glad. But, you know, there's, there's, there's basically a common sense view now of, of what could be done, that roughly people are in the same spot. So when you've got essentially some common sense fixes, you've got an urgent problem. This is, this is one of the biggest untold stories. Mm. When you have this many people who just are living in daily terror. Can you imagine waking up every day not knowing if you're going to go to prison because you got a flat tire and couldn't get to you know, your, your probation appointment or because, you know, the, the bus was late? Or... You know, you got to figure out a way to get to work and to your probation office, and you got to pick up the kids, and you, you know, you can only do two. And if you do, if, if, but any one of those can send you back to prison for child endangerment or not showing up. I mean, people are living in terror every single day. It's a form of psychological, emotional torture that does not increase community safety and costs a ton of money. So, you know, when you explain it to people, like nobody's out there, out there defending the system. The crazy thing is, nobody's out there saying we've got a great probation system. Nobody's defending it. And so that's why I think when you have the great leadership that you've got um, on this issue, um, uh, you know, coming from the legislative level, um, you know, Delosier and Harris and um, uh, 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 Anthony, uh, Tony Williams and others, uh, you've got 
I think, a really, really amazing coalition and a real shot to get something done. And the last thing I'll say is this. On criminal justice, period, and you know this as well as I do, it's been two generations of rushing bills through in the wrong direction with no thought, with no data, with no sense. Now you've got study after study. This is everything we're talking about is either being done in other states, um, or you know, is uh, well, everything we're talking about is being done in other states, and it's backed up by data. Let's start moving in the smart direction, in the right direction, and uh, let's start with this. I mean, we had a clean slate last year. Let's get this one done. Every year, uh, we should get at least one or two uh, fixes done to the criminal justice system across this country. Nick, wonderful. And so will this Smart Probation Act, i got to ask uh, some of the mechanics, I know it's still being worked out, but would it be retroactive and deal with this, would it sort of like this 23-year Monique person who's on probation for 23 years, would it automatically cap these folks? I want to make sure that, you know, folks who are listening know that this this would affect their current sentences as well and not just be forward-looking. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we, we are... Uh, every version of the bill that we have, have seen and that we've talked about is retroactive. You'll never clean up the system if you create two systems, one that makes sense and one that's crazy. Yeah. So yeah. you've got you've got to you know you got to have one system. You got to administer it fairly. But yes, we are definitely talking about retroactivity. And if people want to get involved and help, uh, yeah. reformalliance.com is one way to do that. There are many groups working on this. We're proud to be among those groups. Um, but you know we're we're pushing as hard as we can along with our allies on the left and the right. Uh, but reformalliance.com is a way to get plugged in. Wonderful. And so should people be calling their Congress per- or their state lawmakers and saying, you know, we yeah. want this to happen? Smart probation. Smart probation. That's all. They, you know, you know the, in the House, it's a, a bill uh, 1555. I think in the Senate, it's Senate bill. I believe it's 14. Uh, but just say smart probation. Now, every, everybody will know what you're talking about, that we need smart probation reform and we need it this year. No point in waiting. Uh, give, let's give... Let's give everybody on probation, and we're talking about, you know, we add all together tens of thousands of people and their family members. Let's give everybody on probation uh, the best Christmas present ever by finally putting them in a system that works and that makes sense and that's fair. Wonderful. So I want to say thank you so much to you, Van Jones, and to you, Monique Halton Worrell. Uh, and check out reformalliance.com to get plugged in to share your story uh, and call your state lawmakers. <laughs> Smart probation, right? Yes. Hey, thank you for your thank you for your interest. Next up, she opened a camp to encourage more women to become composers. When I looked to my teachers, they were all men. When I looked to my peers, they were all other boys. The music and motivation. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to check out the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW, and we here at KYW, we are all about community. And one woman is working to close the gender gap in the musical composition field by offering high-level training in a camp over the summer. She is a composer and a cellist who has traveled across the world based on her talents. Recently, she made Temple University's 30 Under 30 list. Here to tell us more is founder of Young Women Composers Camp, Erin Bush. Welcome to Flashpoint, Erin. Thank you for having me. So you've been all around the world. You've been traveling, girl. I've been traveling. I love to travel. Wonderful. So, so let's back up a little bit and tell me, why did you start this Young Women's Composers Camp? 
Well, I started the camp because when I was growing up, there weren't a lot of outlets for young girls who were interested in composing. And when I looked to my teachers, they were all men. When I looked to my peers, they were all other boys that were writing. And when I looked at the pieces that I was playing, they were all by Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, all of these dead white guys. Yeah. Uh, so there aren't a lot of options out there that were encouraging me to say there is a place for women in the field. And I almost didn't go into music composition because of that. So I decided to do something for the next generation to let them know there is a place for you and you're validated. Didn't see it, decided to build it. I yes. love it. <laughs> and so you sort of brought in more women into this. Yeah, I mean, my hope in forming the camp is not only that the girls get the experience of meeting each other and forming these friendships, getting female mentors, but also that over time that will lead to increased awareness by people who are programming, you know, big organizations like the Philadelphia Orchestra and, you know, other national ensembles will start to pay attention to their own programming and will start to reach out to more women, hopefully of a diverse age group as well. What did you find when you started digging into women composers? Up until the last couple of years, the statistics are really awful. The Baltimore Symphony has done a bunch of studies each year about how many women are programmed nationally in like the top, I think it's like 20 or 25 orchestras in the country. And living female composers usually comprise 1% to 2% of the oh, year. Gee, yeah. And even including female composers who have passed on, it's like 9 or 10%. It's, it's really terrible. And do you see the at least the seeds growing of a shift in that? I'm, I think so. And it's also this camp is part of a larger movement of people, part of the Me Too movement that has uh, awareness has grown about this issue outside of just the programming here in Philly. But because of that, I am getting calls from people at the Philly Orchestra asking to talk to me about these issues. And people are starting to pay a little more attention. It's still early days. The composers mm-hmm. that I'm working with are, you know, just some of them are still in high school. A lot of them are in their first year of college. So they're still working on their craft and figuring out what they want to say. But I want to help them be able to say that. And so when did you first get into composing as a because you're a cellist, a musician here? Mm -hmm. When did you start composing? I started composing around the same time I picked up the cello, which is around eight years old. So I've been writing for a long time. I never really thought much of it. it. It sounds silly to say, but I just didn't really think it was anything special or noteworthy. I just would sit at the piano and just write out melodies And then when I got older and started thinking more seriously about it as an art form, it took on a new light of, wow, I can make this a career. I can like work on this as a craft instead of just doing it for fun for myself. And then you looked around and saw that you might be alone. Yes. And that's that's. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's when I started to feel a little more depressed about it is when I started to get more serious about it. So tell us about what do the women do in the camp? So it's a two week camp. It's a day camp, like nine to four p.m. We have classes every day with faculty from the Philadelphia area, and then we bring in local experts as well to teach them about music theory, composition, but also improvisation, orchestration. We bring in ensembles that perform on their instruments for our students and teach them like how to write for trumpet, specifics that they might not know. And then every day they sing in a choir. They sing works by female composers throughout history, so they're learning about the performance component of it as well. And then they each write a new piece for one of our resident ensembles, which changes every year. Our first year, we had a string quartet. This past year, we had cello, clarinet, and piano, and those were members of the the Philly Orchestra with us. And this upcoming year, we have a special guest that still working out the details with, but I'm very excited. Wonderful. And so what's your vision for this? My vision for the camp is that it is just a safe space where young 
women and non-binary composers can come together and learn how to express themselves in a way that will go beyond just music composition, but will also make a lasting impact on the field itself. Wonderful. What do you have coming up and what's on the horizon for the Composers Camp? So for the next year of the Composers Camp, we will have July 6th through the 17th at Temple University. We are still working with some of our upcoming composers that we'll have in as guests, residents, ensembles, and all of that. But it's a little it's a little early to announce specific guests yeah, because um, we're still working out those details. But if everything works out, I think the way I think it's going to, it's going to be a really amazing year. Wonderful. So should young ladies who are talented and play and are musicians, should they be thinking about registering for this camp or somehow wanting to get involved? Well, so the application probably won't go up until January or so, but we'll start posting updates about some of the guests that we're hiring, what the course will look like. So if people are interested, they can follow our Instagram, uh, which is at Young Women Composers, and I'll be posting regular updates as soon as those details are worked out. But one thing that I think makes our camp really special from some other composition camps that exist in the country, not only are we exclusively for young women and non-binary musicians, but we also don't require our students to have any prior compositional training or even compositional experience. With a lot of these other composition programs, you need to have a baseline that's already too high for people to meet if they're not in an area that's supporting composition. So it is just excluding all of these people who might want to be a part of that but have no way to even get to the first level. So, so you're bringing them in. Yes. <laughs> you're like, come on in. We're going to teach you. Yes. And that's wonderful. So I have a feeling that, Erin, you're going to be like helping to produce the next generation of young composers. I hope so. Yeah. I've certainly met a lot of young women who have been so intelligent and lovely and very inspiring. And what's the age range? 14 to 19. 14 to 19. And tell us your Instagram one more time. Uh, it's Young Women Composers. Wonderful. So check Erin Bush out young, at Young Women Composers on Instagram. Thank you so much for coming on Flashpoint and talking about your wonderful camp and this issue in the news. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Mahatma Gandhi once said, truth never damages a cause that is just. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.